and welcome to Gospel Issues uh, with Chris Concern. And uh, we're delighted today to be talking on this uh, very interesting topic of cultural Marxism. And who better to talk to us about it than uh, Melvin Tinker, um, who is the Director of Theology at uh, the Christchurch Network of Churches in Hull, and who has written uh, numerous books over the years, but one in particular uh, on this very subject, that hideous strength, how the West was lost, a deeper look at how the West was lost. I've read it, it's very, very helpful. Uh, thank you, Melvin. It's great to have you um, with us, and we're looking forward to you sharing with us about this. Um, and we've also got Andrea Williams, our chief executive, um, on the line as well. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to play a pre-recorded talk that Melvin has done for us uh, with some helpful slides and comments around this whole subject. Um, and that's about 30 minutes long. And then we'll come back uh, for some Q&A and discussion with Melvin and Andrea. And um, if you're watching live, you can put your questions for Melvin um, into the chat on YouTube or on Facebook. And uh, we will look forward and, uh, and try and get to uh, those questions and look forward to the discussion. But uh, let's get straight into Melvin. Thank you for preparing this talk. It's a great talk. I've watched it, but um, I'm sure people will enjoy watching it now and then we'll come back for Q&A straight afterwards. Thank you. Heresy, together with its accompanying sisters, hysteria and persecution, is alive and kicking here in the West. For example, the high priestess of modern feminism, Jermaine Greer, has been excommunicated from the Church of Feminism and declared to be a non-feminist by Eve Hodgson. Why? Well, because she dared to challenge the new orthodoxy that a man can become a woman either by declaring themselves to be so or by having a physical operation. The same has happened to J.K. Rowling, who has been designated a TERF, that is, a trans-exclusive radical feminist. And as traditionally has happened with heretics, they are forced to recant or be silenced. Global star Kenya West has been thrown out of the Church of Black, denounced as being non-black by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And this is because he said he admired the right-wing cultural commentator Candace Owens. And if that were not enough, he went on to commit the cardinal sin by declaring himself to be an admirer of Donald Trump. And the new political definition of black is that you cannot support Trump, no matter what your skin color or genetic heritage. The entrepreneur, Peter Thiel, though married to a man, has been evicted from the Church of Gay by Jim Downs again for the same reason. He supports Trump, and so you can't be gay, for real gays are anti-Trump. So what has led so many to disappear down the rabbit hole in order to embrace the semantic laissez-faire of Humpty Dumpty with a vengeance? So that words not only mean whatever we want them to mean, but become weapons of mass deception to denigrate those who are considered to be violators of the new sacred orthodoxy of identity politics. That's the brutal game in which winners are victims and losers are the privileged. Welcome to the Orwellian world of cultural Marxism. 
or as it's sometimes called neo-Marxism, or indeed critical theory. Let me offer a very simple definition of cultural Marxism. It's an ideology which believes that human beings need to be liberated from what are considered to be repressive social institutions, like the family or the church, as well as traditional views and authorities which prevent the individual from realizing their true self, fulfilling their inner desires and aspirations, becoming whoever or whatever they want to be. Complete freedom. Now, there are two questions I want us to think about. Why has this revolution occurred and how has it happened? The why question. We may think of it like this. If you want to undermine Western civilization rooted in the Judeo-Christian worldview, how might you go about it? Well, how about labeling the whole of our past as sexist, racist, and patriarchal, and fundamentally unjust, and so not worth preserving? How about pers persuading people that they will only be free if the powerful are toppled from their positions of power, and that power is then redistributed amongst the minority groups? Or how about getting people to believe that if they don't get it, that anyone who's white, male, cis, able-bodied, heterosexual is loaded with privilege and power, they themselves have been brainwashed by the system, a sign that they need liber liberating and re-educating. We have in operation the doubting game getting people to doubt those things which for centuries have been taken as givens, and then to present the glowing alternative which cannot be doubted, what is dubbed radical democracy. So the how question, how has this happened? Well, to begin to answer that question, we need to delve a little into communist history. In 1921, after a successful career as a journalist and commentator for socialist newspapers, one of the key figures in the development of cultural Marxism, Antonio Gramsci, who actually was the founder of the Italian Communist Party, began to turn his attention to interests which were not just theoretical, as with Marx and Engels, but practical. The world that drove Gramsci to develop his theories was that of interwar Europe. And he was facing two questions which would also vex the Frankfurt School. That is the group of academics and agitators which formally forged what is called critical theory. People like Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Erich Fromm, Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse. And the two questions were these. Why hadn't the inevitable revolution Marx predicted taken place? And how can communism be brought not just to Russia, but to the Western nations? Marx believed that there was no such thing as a fixed human nature, but rather that people were shaped like clay by their socio-economic conditions. In 1859, he had written, 
It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. Gramsci took this one stage further, which differed significantly from Marx, namely that culture itself, influenced by a dominant group, is a major shaping force, not just political and economic factors. Putting it crudely, for Marx, politics and economics shaped culture. But for Gramsci, culture shaped politics and economics. As Andrew Breitbart has put it, politics is downstream from culture. Gramsci developed the key idea of hegemony from the Greek word hegemon, meaning ruler. And this, he says, the process by which a dominant class exerts and maintains its influence over people through non-coercive means, such as through schools, the media, and marketing. And it works by changing what people consider to be normal, those things which are just taken for granted as being right. It's the presumption which declares of course, everybody nowadays knows that dot, 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 and you fill in the blanks. The aim is to get people to think, and especially feel for themselves, that certain values and practices, such as same-sex marriage, the ability to define for oneself one's gender, are obvious, common sense, just, or even natural. Then you see, you don't argue about these things because, in fact, there's nothing to argue about. So it is assumed. But if you start arguing that, for example, homosexual practice is wrong, you're going to be held down, as if you were claiming that the world is actually flat. And so your viewpoint can be conveniently ignored. But if you persist in your views, and certainly if you become vocal in them, action will be taken against you. For Gramsci, change occurs by capturing society through infiltrating and dominating the key culture-making institutions, such as the church, schools, the media, and the civil institutions, the police, law courts, public services, and so on. In short, it's a matter of winning society by changing its culture, hence the term cultural Marxism. However, once the cultural heights have effectively been captured, then non-coercion can rapidly give way to outright coercion, as I believe we're seeing in our society today. Here, a crucial distinction was introduced by Gramsci between a war of position and a war of manoeuvre. Now, the war of manoeuvre was that conventional idea of the final revolutionary offensive that would impose a socialist system, you know, like the storming of the Winter Palace in 1917, Tsarist Russia. But for Gramsci, the revolution had to be preceded by the war of position, 
which sought to shape the cultural environment of a society to make it receptive to revolutionary ideas, which at one time they would have thought anathema. Now this Gramsci strategy is made up of several elements. First, positive tolerance. In what was to become one of the foundational works of identity politics, Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe wrote Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, which builds on Gramsci in order to find a way for the left to establish its own hegemony to bring about what they term radical democracy. Sometimes this is referred to as the Essex School of Thought. Now, they propose that, given the social complexity that now exists, what is required to effect social change is not simply the mobilization of a single class, the proletariat, but a bringing together under one umbrella all the diverse groups which are engaged in their own particular struggles. Urban, ecological, feminist, anti-racist, ethnic, sexual minorities, and so on. And they argue that the narrative, the big story, which will enable the energy of these disparate groups to be harnessed for social change, is the use of power. Now this, they say, is a product of the social organization of Western society, which is not only capitalist, but inherently sexist, patriarchal, and racist. And even if there are tensions and contradictions between the groups, which there are, think, for example, of the conflict going on at the moment between the trans movement and second wave feminists, they're not to criticize each other. They are to be positively tolerant. Now here we see a reconfiguring of classical Marxism. How classical Marxism was perceived is illustrated by a poster which appeared in 1911 depicting what was called the pyramid of the capitalist system. So at the bottom there are the oppressed workers whose shoulders support the entire edifice with the caption, we work for all and feed all. And above them, whining and dining, are the well-off capitalist classes. Their caption, we eat for you. The next tier is the military. We shoot you. Then there are the religious leaders. We fool you. Above them, the monarch. We rule you. But finally, perched at the top, is a big bag of money with a dollar sign, signifying capitalism. Now, what Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary, that's the storied way of thinking by which all reality is to be viewed and understood, and which lies at the very centre of much social justice ideology, would render that 1911 post rather differently today. Oh, capitalism is still at the top of the pyramid of oppression, but the other tiers would be occupied by a different set of people. Heading the hierarchy would be white male heterosexuals. Below them, experiencing the inequalities of power would be the minorities, 
most notably gays, women, trans, and pretty well anyone who's not white. And these are to be seen as the victims of this white, patriarchal, heterosexual cis system. So as the old Marxists sought to free the oppressed laborers and correct the economic inequalities by the redistribution of wealth, within the new paradigm of cultural Marxism, the power of the patriarchal white males in particular is to be shared out amongst those minority groups. Then we have zero tolerance of any position taken by the right, that is conservative forces. You don't give them a chance and you certainly don't give them a voice, as has been seen recently in the response to the newly formed GB News. All those on the political right are labelled oppressors. And those who are classed as minorities are the oppressed. What cultural Marxism does is to seek an ever-expanding coalition of victim groups, racial, ethnic, religious, gender, ad infinitum. So the mantle of victimhood sanctifies them all, and so is ultimately sought by all. And linked to this is the sense of entitlement by the members of the alleged victim group. Then we have what I've already referred to as the capturing the commanding heights of culture. This involved what has been called the long march through the institutions. As one writer has put it, from an initial bulwark in higher education, cultural Marxism in the United Kingdom has progressively gained control of thought and instruction in institutions including primary, secondary education, the media, the civil service, law and the legal profession, the government in 1997, much of the judiciary and most recently the police. Then we have the destabilization of language. This enables a new language to be devised by which the power of the elite can be exerted. The goal for Herbert Marcuse was to, quote, break the established universe of meaning. So think, for example, of the tectonic shift in the meaning of the word tolerance. The old tolerance was the need for a society to accept and the existence of different views and, and, and live in harmony. The new tolerance is the acceptance of different views. So to accept that a different position exists and deserves the right to exist is one thing. To accept the position itself as authentic or true means one no, is no longer opposing it. And those who do oppose it are to be opposed. Then we come to the assigning of value of two people according to their group identity. This is identity politics. This has a dark side to uh, this kind of categorization which has been picked up by former communist Marxist David Horowitz. This is what he says. By obliterating the particulars and casting parties as genders rather than individuals, the question of guilt and innocence is preordained. In identity politics, only collective rights matter, not individual rights. What matters is one's membership in a victim group or oppressor group. 
Membership is based on characteristics the individual can't change. Identity politics is a politics of hate and a prescription for war. You see, if you belong to a designated oppressor group, for example, privileged white male, you are guilty simply by virtue of belonging to that group, regardless of how you may have acted as an individual. At least if an individual considers actions he had previously taken to be morally wrong, well, then he can change, or to use the religious term, repent, and so be offered forgiveness. Such a possibility, however, is not open to a group. And so the designated oppressor group must forever be burdened with the stigma so long as it continues to exist. The Clowand move proposed that part of the socialist strategy to bring about the new hegemony of the left is what they call external actors to those who are in these unequal power relations to keep drawing attention to the fact. And so advocates of identity politics and intersectionality incessantly remind us that our societies are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, colonialist, and the list goes on. These oppressions form part of a, an interlocking web which somehow must be unpicked if radical democracy is to be achieved. And such unpicking is taking place now big time on both sides of the pond. If you understand classical Marxism as a battle between the haves and the have-nots, well, the culturalist Marxist tension is between the chavs and the chavnots. There are three destructive effects of cultural Marxism which is now in full flow in our Western societies. First, everything becomes politicised and weaponized. And in this respect, Marx is one, in that everything has taken on universal political significance. And this is now part of the intuitive way we, we all think about society, whether you're of the left or of the right. Secondly, we're doomed to perpetual conflict. The cultural Marxist focus on groups at the expense of the individual, coupled with the fact that equality of outcomes can never be realised, means that conflict will be endless. One of the desperate features of our society is that of grievance and vengefulness, which are multiplied and amplified with breathtaking speed via the social media. In one sense, there is no end game to critical theory. The game is the end, the constant destabilization of all claims to power in their various expressions. Thirdly, truth is sacrificed on the altar of ideology, and so our hold on reality becomes increasingly tenuous. When Heather MacDonald, the author of War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Unsafe, was invited to speak at Claremont McKenna College in 2017, many students objected to her being given a platform because it would be tantamount to, quote, condoning violence against black people. 
The students wrote, historically, white supremacy has venerated the idea of objectivity and wielded a dichotomy of subjectivity versus objectivity as a means of silencing oppressed peoples. The idea that there is a single truth, the truth, is a construct of the Euro-West. So matters of truth are simply discarded as a case of a Euro-West construction in order to silence oppressed people's groups. Now what we've got here is a clear instance of what C.S. Lewis called bulverism. The fallacious nature of this is easily exposed by simply asking whether the statement that the alleged dichotomy between subjectivity and objectivity is itself an objective statement, in which case it is conceded there is such a thing as objectivity. And it's not the sole preserve or construction of the Euro-West. If, on the other hand, it's subjective, well, it can be discarded of being of little consequence and we can all move on. But the important point is this, that reasoned discourse is at a discount, leaving society vulnerable to, to the prey of those who have the loudest voice or the biggest clubs to beat you with via the many social platforms which are now available. Back in 1975, Alvin Goldner made an important distinction between revolutionary intellectuals and what he called the intelligentsia. The intelligentsia refers to the members of the highly educated middle classes who inherit and manage the power that comes from the revolutionary ideas of the true intellectuals. And the key word is manage. Goldner says this, it is not the proletariat who came to power under socialism, but first privileged intellectuals and then privileged intelligentsia. Now the intelligentsia don't have that much originality, he says, but what they do have is power. By using their technological and managerial skills to expand the ideas of the intellectuals in the name of liberation. And so what we have is, is, is a new elite with managerial mentality and skills in politics, education and the media. So these are the so-called experts who are to be believed and obeyed. And whilst they may not uh, be too drawn to the old socialist fa fallacy of the equality of the economic equality of outcomes, there is the delusional pursuit of the equality of social outcomes. Now, there are parallels to what's happening in our society in former, former communist countries. Vaclav Havel was one of the leading members of the Charter 77 movement which led the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia in 1989. Their motto was, live the truth. Now, he was well acquainted with a government that held on to power despite its own bankruptcy, what he called a post-totalitarian society, one which was not a traditional dictatorship, but was still totalitarian 
in imposing its ideology on its citizenry. And in 1978, he wrote a very important book called The Power of the Powerless, a classic expression of life in a regime that didn't work, but which required everyone to act as if it did. And in this book, it, 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 there's a very famous uh, passage about a greengrocer who put up a sign supplied by the Communist Party, declaring, workers of the world unite. What, Havel asks, does the sign really mean? His answer, verbally, he says, it might be expressed in this way. I, the greengrocer, XY, live here and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended upon and, and beyond reproach. I am obedient and therefore have the right to be left in peace. This message, of course, has an addressee. It is directed above to the greengrocer superior. And at the same time, it is a shield that protects the greengrocer from potential informers. A post-totalitarian system that did not rely simply on direct force and intimidation to impose its will could, nonetheless, exert an unbreakable control over its citizens through this kind of requirement for ideological correctness. The greengrocer, Havel goes on to say, doesn't believe the sign, but fear of the consequences keeps him obedient. Further, the ideological excuse that the sign is superficially in favour of a higher cause allows the greengrocer to lie to himself that his behaviour is not cowardice and a breach of conscience. If it said, I'm afraid and therefore unquestioningly obedient, he would not be able to ignore the truth. Now, it doesn't require that much of a leap of imagination to see how that translates to our own context. While most people may never even heard the term cultural Marxism, they are aware of beliefs and practices which are undergirded by it and expressions of it like diversity, inclusive, inclusivity, white privilege, white fragility, black lives matter, trans rights, and so on. And like Havel's greengrocer, they are also aware of what is expected of them in adopting and displaying the signs which affirm and promote the progressive ideology. And in part, this explains the display of rainbow flags at police stations, Sainsbury's stores, Anglican cathedrals. It's why National Trust workers were obliged to wear rainbow lanyards, and now soccer players required to take the knee. So in conclusion, cultural Marxism, crisis or conspiracy? There are those like Professor Jordan Peterson who in seeking to expose the all-pervading influence of cultural Marxism are sometimes derisively dismissed as buying into a conspiracy theory. As if there's a carefully coordinated international group which meets in a clandestine manner like Spectre plotting the downfall of the capitalist West. But of course, for something to be a conspiracy, it needs to be a secret. And there's never ever been anything remotely secret about the work of the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism. However, given the widespread and strategic occupation 
of cultural Marxist ideas and methods in key institutions, such as academia, the media, different levels of government, and across the political parties. It can be said, I believe, that there is a conspiracy in the same sense as when we speak of everything conspiring to make a situation worse. There need not be an overt pact made between those who occupy such positions of power, who promote cultural Marxist values, for there to be a tacit agreement that this is the narrative they want to see operating in the West. Does cultural Marxism constitute conspiracy? I don't think so. Does it mark a major crisis? Undoubtedly. For we are seeing the replacement of one worldview, the Judeo-Christian one, with another dystopian neo-Marxist one. Well, um, that was an excellent talk. I think uh, really, really helpful. Um, and I'm very delighted that Melvin is here with us uh, now to discuss the talk. Thank you, Melvin. Great talk. Okay. Really, really helpful perspective there. And I think we've got Andrea as well um, on the line. Um, hi, Andrea. Hi. Hi you. Um, what a great talk, wasn't it, Andrea? Fantastic. I always love to listen to Melvin and to read his books. It's thank you, Melvin, for your uh, great insight. So important at this at this time. Yeah, and I think we had a question from Poppy Love on YouTube, um, who said, um, "Is there a book or a transcript or something?" And, and of course, there is um, a book. Um, um, this book here, that, which I sort of talked about earlier on. Melvin, talk about talk about this book a minute. Why did you write it, and and where did you get this title idea from? <laughs> sure. Um... Well, back in 2018, I was asked to give a talk at a, a large conference a meeting in Jerusalem on cultural Marxism. And uh, as I was, you know, doing all the research, cultural Marxism, thinking about it, uh, this idea of this, uh, the, uh, the notion of a, of a hegemony, of a, of a, of a, a, a sort of elite group of people controlling the populace through various means, uh, rang a bell. And uh, it came to me, it's one of the sort of twilight zones as you go into sleep, and it was C.S. Lewis's book, um, That Hideous Strength. Mm. And um, I went back to that, and there he describes, um, in, in his day, particularly thinking about a scientific uh, group through technology uh, controlling uh, the population. And, uh, and so I, I looked at that, and, and in fact, uh, what he then did was, uh, well, the actual title, That Hideous Strength, comes from a, a poem written back in 1555 by uh, Sir David Lindsay, uh, which speaks of the Tower of Babel being that shadow of the hideous strength six miles or more at its length. Right. So then that sent me to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel story. And yeah. then it seemed to me a, 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 a great description, really, of, of what's happening uh, well, human beings do it all the time, but it's this idea of trying to dismantle God's world, construct mm -hmm. your own world, to de-God God. God. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And so I wrote the book. Yeah, and it's a very helpful book. Um, if you want more, you want more detail on the references and all that stuff, I, I do recommend getting hold of it. Mm -hmm. That's hideous, that hideous strength, a deeper look at how the West is like. But now, I'm sure, um, the, uh, I'm sure that that link can be put into the comment comment box. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we should do that. 
Um, but um, and do ask your questions if you're watching live on Facebook and YouTube um, for Melvin. But we've got one here um, just now um, from Lizzie Harwood. Question for Melvin: Is cultural Marxism the biggest threat to the gospel um, that this nation has faced? Um, and how should Christians respond in everyday settings, like when it's assumed that everyone agrees with, for example, BLM, trans rights, etc.? We need to be winsome and sensitive without letting it define us, but it's so hard. Um, so thank you, Lizzie. Um, Melvin. Yeah, I think um, whether it's ever been the, the biggest threat ever to the gospel in this country, I'm not sure about, but it certainly is a very, very significant threat. Yeah. Uh, not only to the gospel, but in fact, the actual well-being of our nation and indeed the West in general. Because what we're talking about here is something which, as I've explained in the talk, um, inherently destructive uh, and disruptive. And um, at the heart of it is one of the key elements in Marxism anyway, but certainly there in cultural Marxism, is the abolition of the nuclear family. Um, yeah. And that is one of, obviously, you know, sort of key building block in God's world. So to destroy that and what they call heteronormativity, in sexuality and so on, invariably leads to misery, untold misery, as Marxism has throughout history, classical mm. Marxism, and that's the case here. Um, and the threat to the, the gospel is, is simply this, that if the church doesn't wake up to this, if the church see, doesn't get back to being the church and providing an alternative view of reality, which is the reality, uh, as God has revealed it, uh, then invariably the, the church is going to shrink and shrink and shrink. And not only that, but it will then be subject to more overt persecution um, than it is at the moment in this country. And what was the second part? What do we do? Is that yes. Yeah. Um, well, I think where possible, we, we actually challenge this. I mean, one of the problems is the way, the way in which many of these um, movements get get traction is when people remain silent um and it's assumed there's nothing to argue about this becomes the is what they call the plausibility structures this is the way things are well it's not and, just remaining silent it's, it's complying isn't it with rainbow complying, yeah. Or, yeah. or taking the knee or whatever the, the latest virtue signaling thing might be on the I think what i've always found surprising is um in the work that we do at Christian Concern and mm. seeking to speak into Parliament on issues, but also with our cases, um, certainly starting out as a young barrister, I felt that maybe the church would wake up when the first street preacher was arrested. How about when a magistrate with many years experience simply says children do best with a mum and dad? Mm. How about um, when a social worker believes that marriage is between a man and a woman mm. and doesn't want to place children into same-sex households, I thought at some point along this line, the world would wake up. Mm. What about animal-human hybrids in 2007? Um, the mixing of cow's eggs with human sperm. Was the world going to wake up? I mean, and, um, and so it goes on. How about sending pills by post in order to kill your babies in the home. But Ante, the thing with cultural Marxism is, right, that you can point to like secularism and say, 
look, there it is. We all understand it and we all understand why it's wrong. You can point to Islam and say, look, there it is. And here's all its teachings. And we all understand why that's wrong as well. Cultural Marxism, you can't quite finger it so well. You know, you've done brilliant the job there, Melvin. But you can't quite say, oh, there it is. And this is what they teach. There's their textbook. And, and this is clearly what they believe. And, you know, here is and, and there it is kind of thing. And people convert to it and people don't convert. It doesn't quite work like that. It's much more sort of... Um, you know, hideous for want of a better word. Yeah, it, 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 it's like a gas, really, sort of yeah. everything. And what we see are the outworkings of that. And Andrew's mentioned a few of them. Um, our, um, children, well, our children are being taught. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you can see this in the schools. And, and when, you know, the whole thing of mermaids uh, and, and, and the things that are being introduced in school, in primary school level, um, all that is now working cultural Marxism. Yes, uh, and, it is. And that level, and of course, it's captured the universities, certainly yes. the humanities departments. And where do our teachers come from? Well, they come from universities, they come from training colleges, and they're taught this stuff. Mm. So it's not surprising that our children, and it's assumed this is true. Mm. This well, is our children are being taught, they're, I mean, this is what I think our children don't know how to think differently. If you are being taught cultural Marxism, if that's the worldview that you are given, uh, you, or the outwork in cultural Marxism, age four, age five. You're, if gender is is a is a is a social construct, all yeah. of this. If that's what you're taught at age four, age five, how do you ever unpack it? You can't. I mean, as opposed to being taught the truth, which is God made you in His image, male and female. And you know, yeah. imagine just how freeing it is. Imagine how the boundaries that are set by Christianity are so good, obviously, for humanity, and yet. Um, the church is really on mute. I mean, to go back to that question, in terms of its threat, we have allowed ourselves to be muted on yes. this front. But Even think, uh, teachers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing is, um, one of the other things with cultural Marxism, they don't want you to think. That, that's the strength of it. You, you, you simply accept. It's, you, you emote rather than respond. Uh, and that is, is all the sort of things that's encouraged. And in some ways, the, the way in which social media works with tweets and, and everything else fosters that. So you don't have long discursive arguments. You have bang reactions, emotive reactions and emojos and everything else which, which convey that. Um, and, and therefore, you're not expected to think. They don't want you to think. They simply want you to adopt this. And therefore, you're much more malleable if you're just working at the emotional level. And, and actually, you see this in the church. Uh, you certainly see it in the Church of England uh, and synod debates. They're not synod debates. It's emoting. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm just seeing Peter King here on YouTube has put this scripture up. Two, two, three, four, three. You, you, you'll know it, Melvin. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching by having itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And um, do you agree that that's a relevant scripture for this? And are there any other scriptures that you would point to, Melvin, to uh, illustrate what is happening in our culture today with this? Yeah, it, it's, it certainly is a, a good scripture and, and certainly relevant. Um, but the one I would go to, which is, for me is a key, is a key one, is uh, Colossians chapter two and verse eight. And this is what Paul says: uh, "See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy." which depends on human tradition, and uh, this is the key term, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, 
rather than on Christ. Now that phrase, elemental forces of this world, only appears three times in scripture, twice in Colossians, once in Galatians. And it's, it, the, the word is, it, the, the phrase is stokia to cosmo, the, the elements of the world. Yeah. This was really behind C.S. Lewis's book on, on that hideous strength, that he saw behind all the technology and the, the scientism of his day, demonic forces. He called them macrobes. Um, but in his mind was this kind of, of verse that we're not engaged in a simple, um, it's not purely political, it is spiritual, and there are spiritual forces at work. It's not purely philosophical either. And it's not purely yeah. philosophical. Uh, yeah. And it's human tradition. Yeah. Well, I think this must be very interesting in this whole response in the past year to COVID. Um, yeah. We've been told that science is the answer. But I think, and, I mean, and I think that what's interesting in all of this is that science without the moral framework, without a truth framework, just a whole set of facts that, or people saying these are the facts or different interpretations of facts, different interpretations of science, show you how hollow this can become when we think the material can provide us with an answer. We can't do any of life. Melvin, you talked about the humanities being taken uh, over by cultural Marxism, but there's a, there's a reality too that without the humanities framed in a God framework, in a fully orbed, without the humanities not being taken captive to deceptive um, philosophies, um, there is no framework, there's no social framework in which that's, to understand the science, that, because that, that, science just cool. does but, but this goes back to Lewis's point that um, without a real ethical framework, he, he spoke of it in terms of um, men without chess. He talked about this, that you, you, you have, you've got to have connect between, if you like, the, the head, the rational and the gut. And that connection is the conscience, you know, sort of moral guidance or God, divine guidance and so on. That's taken away. What do you have? A straight connect between head and gut. Um, yeah. And that's not sufficient to be, in fact, you cease to be truly human. And then you also become open to manipulation. So you're quite right, Andrea. Um, it, it, when, when the prime minister spoke, we're going to be led by the science. Well, that wasn't terribly accurate um, because, the, as you said, there are different interpretations. But also when one looks into, um, you know, the sort of behavioral unit that's been involved in this, and uh, Professor Susan Mickey, who's a card-carrying communist and behavioral scientist, one does begin to wonder, um, okay, you don't just simply have data, you have an interpretation of data, and not only the interpretation of data, but then you have the political question, how do we apply this? What are the consequences? What should we do as a result of this? That's a political, moral decision, not mm. a scientific one. Yeah. So what, um, what's your advice for churches on this, Melvin? Because my worry is that most churches aren't even aware of it or don't really understand yeah. it um, at all. But let's assume that we do, having watched your talk and read your book or something, you know? I think, it, I think it's a, fundament, a more fundamental question that needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, it's not just in relation to cultural Marxism, um, but how the church functions as the church. And what the church is meant to be doing is to be um, 
a themselves affirming in, and engaging with the reality of God in Christ, what God, transcending God is doing in this world. And that means that we are shaped by God's revelation in scripture, not whatever the latest ism uh, is uh, going abroad. Yeah. And, and, and the, the, the church, and particularly the pastors of the church, and this is what theology is about, has two functions. There's a negative function of theology and a positive. The negative is that we must lovingly, kindly, out of neighborly love, critique the world. In yeah. order to save the world, we must go against the world. Yeah. Uh, and the second positive theology, uh, the positive as aspect, is that we must be teaching our people the biblical worldview and all the entailments. And for that to happen, pastors have got to become more culturally literate than they actually are. And if one's going abroad to, to be a missionary or whatever it is, one of the first things you do, not only learn the language, you learn the culture to yeah. go together. Yeah. But what it seems to me is that many pastors are failing to do, they're, oh, we're going to teach the gospel, we're going to preach the gospel. But what they're not doing is appreciating the culture into which that gospel is being preached and in which their people uh, live, move and have their being. And yeah. critical to this now is understanding cultural Marxism. So pastors need to get, you know, get alert to this, get taught, and then to yeah. be teaching their congregations. Yeah. And do you have a view on how the gospel is best preached to yeah, the cultural Marxist culture? Like, like you know, where does, where does the gospel connect best? You know, it seems to go with this victim thing. Do we say Jesus is a victim and, and the ultimate victim? Is that a good way to preach the gospel? Well, it's certainly one way in. I, I'm... I, I, I'm always a, a wee bit wary of sort of broad strokes on, you know, blanket things. This is where you, you, you preach gospel in this particular context. Um, but I, I tend to want to listen to where people are at and, and, and to listen to their views and then to try to push them a little bit. Well, why mm -hmm. do you think this? And, you, you know, until it's a Schaefer thing, really, I guess, you know, yeah. you push people to the logic of their conclusions and showing the, the horror and in fact i think what we often find i, I found as one's been talking to this even with non-christians they're saying hey this makes sense now i can see why this has happened and i don't i know something's wrong something's different about our culture to what it was in the mm. middle of the century yeah but this helps me understand it and i don't like it now in that situation where they're uncomfortable and fed up with being pushed around by cultural marxists they can then say, we can then say, well, actually, there is an alternative. This is it. And then one can explain the gospel in all its fullness. And that's what we try and do through the World Force Academy, training up the next generation. So that's our program for 18 to 24 year olds. And we find very often um, they're young and men and women who are Christian. They're very passionate. But we say this is the first time we've heard people speak to us about this. Mm. And that always makes quite sad so it shows that i think that the churches need to wake up um to what cultural marxism is melvin they need to read your book listen to your video um but we really need to understand this and we need to understand that we need to be deprogramming our children or rather helping our children to put on the armor in order to live in this cultural marxist world and we need to be starting at sunday school we need to be starting with them, well, as soon, age two, age three, age four, as Christian parents, as people that are responsible within our churches. That's something that we can do in order to shape a next generation of Christians, 
or our own generation, but a next generation of Christians that is able to withstand the world that they are living in, that is able to understand, it's the cultivation of the mind, to understand the, the culture that they are living in, to and then to defend the gospel and to speak up. And yes. let me say, I'm sorry, for some reason I just got locked off and I came back on again just a moment ago, so this may have been covered. But what is the church to do right now? Well, it's to stay open for starters. We have allowed ourselves to be closed in the midst, yes, of a health crisis, but in a time when we have the eternal hope, we have the answer to cultural Marxism and the answer to the fear of death. And as I always say, the way the, way the gospel could go out is not to so reflect the world that we look more scared than the world even, but mm -hmm. to actually be the hospitals we're the heart hospitals, we're the emotional hospitals, we're the head hospitals, we're the, we are there, we should be there, we should be open 24-7 in every village and town across this country. Just imagine that. I mean, that's always my challenge. Just imagine a church that understood the culture, I therefore understood cultural Marxism, a church that had actually read Melvin's book mm. <laughs> and, and, and read it, um, and applied it through, you know, applied it, applied the truths contained therein, and act, and was open, uh, open for business, open for gospel business. And part of that, as you've said, Melvin, is if we're open and saying we understand to people, this listening to people, when they say I'm lost, I'm lonely, I'm scared, um, I'm locked down, I, I this 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 world is crazy to me. Mm. And we can actually point that we can point them to their plan and purpose in Christ Jesus, yes. which he truly has for them. Yes. And this and that's the hope that we that's the hope that we have. Yes. And but we've been closed. We've looked as scared as the world. Many of us have looked as scared, if not more scared than the world. Mm. We speak, we pacify the world with our language instead of pushing out this great and glorious hope that is fearless. That, you know, we sh that should be fearless because we have such passion for the lost culture around us. I'm aching for the lost mm. uh, that are lost as a result of being propagandized by cultural Marxism. How, how, no. no, they can't think any differently. No, that's right. And, and that's the great sadness and it is spiritual. And we know that the gospel is the only thing that can break in. So when are we gonna wake up church? Because we're the only ones that God has here in the UK at this time. Yeah, well, Melvin, you sold at least one book. I can see from a comment somebody said just bought a book um, there, um, which is great. I was just thinking, Melvin, is this a natural extension of political correctness, or is it is political correctness part of cultural Marxism? Because it seems like when correctness says you can't say these things, you have to say to go on, and then you get more and more victims that have to be honoured in, in this way and that way. Is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, political correctness itself is a Maoist term. Right. Correct. And then if, if you weren't political correct, you were re-educated. And that's happening even in this country. Right. Uh, that, you, you know, it, um, one has to have uh, racial bias training and all that that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, so it's the same thing. Yeah. And, and the whole notion of woke, you see, is, yeah. is also an expression of this. Um, that uh, there are certain enlightened ones that's what work mm. means awaken ones yeah um, and that's in terms of critical race theory 
um, sexism, misogyny, trans, everything else. So yeah. the, the woke people, they're the enlightened ones. This is the new uh, enlightened priesthood, if you like. Mm. And the rest of us have to be subject to that. If mm. not, we are heretics and we know what happens to heretics. Mm. So you've got to uh, genuflect in, <laughs> take the knee, in their direction or mm. else you're in trouble. Mm. And um, I was also very struck, uh, Melvin, by your phrase, coalition of victims is that what you said yeah um, that that it seems to unite everyone who call, who is able to sort of claim this victimhood status and and so you know islam and lgbt which don't naturally fit together no. you know both yeah. claim victim status and and come under this and somehow it seems to unite all the different sort of groups um but then christians although we're also victims in some ways we we, we get left out of this somehow yeah, that, maybe that's, because it's spiritual after all, Melvin. Is that what it, it is? Yeah, I'm sure that's 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 part <laughs> of it. Uh, but also, it's because Christianity, in its true and pure form, will invariably critique all of these things. Yeah, and and transcends them and stands over them, uh, because God and the gospel stands over them, um, and therefore cannot. Therefore, it, it can't be embraced. What can be embraced is a liberal form of Christianity, which is no Christianity anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, and so a sort of, I don't know, um, you can have a victimized Christianity, which is okay. But, right. you know, and, and it's a similar, I think, what, what's going on, I know time's running out, but um, what I think is quite interesting in a way in which what seems to me as a, as, a, as a clear victim group is not being recognized as such by the elite, and that is working class boys. Yeah. Um, who are suffering in so many different ways. And yeah. uh, when I read of one leader of Black Lives Matter, for instance, dismisses them as subhuman or recessive genetically deficient, uh, that seems to me pretty race or simply classist. But yeah. somehow they, they don't count. You know, we're not worried about the white working classes, and we should yeah. be. Yeah, because they're uh, at least represented at university and things like that, aren't they? But, yeah. We should really be we should be really concerned. That's why we need to open the churches and we need to, you know, one of the things we need to do is build our families, uh, model yeah. family, model fatherhood, go and collect the, the lost working class boys without their dads, you know, look after, look after these homes, yeah. educate them well, uh, show them, an, show them uh, another way. You know, I think the thing about it all is as well, with all the victim groups groups, the father of the thinking the fuck is is the devil they mm -hmm. said so the it the the lies the lies um is the in the spiritual battle the father of lies himself so so what you've got is an out and so you've got an outworking of the chaos and the victimhood i mean the that uh, in terms of that thinking the father of, of course of the it, uh, of, Chris, of christianity god is our father so that it's truth and lies, and so it's it's two it's it's two sides. And when we are, when the Christian is, um, when the Christian is oppressed or asked to go on re-education training, then we say, um, "I go willingly. Mm. I suffer for Christ willingly. Mm. It's my honour to suffer for Him." And that's what we found. Well, that's what we experienced at the Christian Legal Centre mm. day in day out i have met hundreds and hundreds of christians now who say i wouldn't change a thing for standing for jesus where i am in my workplace yes 
and and that's and so they're not victims we don't consider ourselves victims and we love those and we love those that say that they are victims mm. um you know that left lost in the network of the deceiver of lies sadly mm. and there are victims i mean let's not go to the other extreme obviously of saying there aren't any victims we know there are victims all around and um and as Tim alluded earlier on, when we think of Christ, you know, the ultimate victim um, and the ultimate rejection of the world of, of its creator and how he submitted to that in order to redeem. And, and as Peter says, he is the model we're to follow in his footsteps. Uh, and that was written, uh, 1 Peter, in a context where um, Nero was, was Caesar and uh, Christians were being martyred. Um, but it, it is the way of acknowledging our, our need and, and, and also going the way of, sounds a bit cliche, but vulnerability. But that's what we do. That's, that's the Christian way with a humble dependence upon our Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. Well, Melvin, I'm conscious of time, but that's been a really, really helpful talk and discussion afterwards as well. We really appreciate your wisdom and the study and work that's gone into this and your understanding of this. I hope that many people... Uh, watch uh, this talk and this discussion and also get hold of your book, That Hideous Strength, uh, which is really helpful. And we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And if you're watching us today, I hope you agree that you found that really helpful as well. Um, we'll be live again on Friday lunchtime and uh, we'll uh, do watch out for further Gospel Issues seminars as well. So thank you for joining us. Uh, really helpful evening and see you again soon. Bye.